great to have you with us as, um, as we are going through the book of Romans. We are in chapter 9, and uh, we're going to just right off the bat read our passage. It's a rather long passage, and uh, we're going to start in verse 6. I know we covered through verse 9 last time, uh, but trust me, it's, it's, as it will be good as a point of reference. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up, and we'll start Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born had, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. And Lord, as we read some difficult things, we ask that you would be, through your spirit, the great explainer. And uh, Lord, that we would not seek to move you toward our point of view, but God, we would bring ourselves and, uh, 
and uh, in dependence of you, we would, uh, we would be shaped and changed into the image of Christ. So we love you, and uh, God, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are, Romans chapter 9. We are in the, in the meat of, of this great chapter. We spent the first part, uh, first half year, going through Romans chapters 1 through 8. And we called that not ashamed. Because in a, in a world of bad news, what we learned, God has given us good news. And that good news centers on the fact that God provided his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to us, to undeserving sinners, and yet through faith in Christ, he saves. He saves. So last week, we, we turned our attention to chapter 9, and um, just as the Apostle Paul pivots somewhat in the direction of what he wants to, what he, what he writes about, um, in chapters 9 through 11, we're calling not adrift. Because even though we are God's children, there are questions and circumstances that we face that can lead to uncertainty and sometimes a sense of helplessness. The key, as we see in these chapters, is found in our proximity to God. That the further away we remove ourselves from the presence of God and the truth of God in his word, the more helpless life seems and the more adrift uh, it becomes. So in Romans 9, there is a sense in which God is on trial. That was what we called last week's message. And so we're getting very creative this week and we're, we're calling this message God on Trial Part 2. <laughs> um, because we, we started uh, and, and saw that in this passage, in throughout Romans 9, the surface issue uh, revolves around this. What is going on with the Jews? That's the question. Paul has just finished chapter 8 in this great uh, statement of truth that, that there is no separation for the children of God from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we saw that Paul specifically sees that in this church at Rome that he's writing this letter to, uh, that uh, th th there would no doubt be a question of, well, why aren't more Jews coming to faith in the Messiah that was promised to their forefathers? Maybe even specifically the church in Rome being once predominantly Jewish as every church, every early church was, and now... There's not only are more Gentiles coming to Christ, but there are fewer Jews coming to Christ. In responding, Paul recognizes that, um, okay, you may be asking on the surface what about the Jews, but there's an underlying question here that needs to be addressed. Have you ever... Have you ever been in a discussion with a friend or maybe your spouse or, or, or your child? 
And you realize as y'all are talking, something's wrong. There's a bit of an edge in their voice. Uh, and so you ask them, what's wrong, what's going on? And they just blow you off. Um, or they say something like, oh, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong. Even though you know, yeah, there's, there's something wrong here. And, uh, and maybe they tell you something kind of simple. Well, I got my feelings hurt or something. But just the longer you talk, the more you realize this underlying issue um, is, is prevalent and they're not leveling with you. Well, Paul, Paul realizes this. No, no doubt it is through the Holy Spirit, uh, just giving him, him the discerning, that in answering the question of what about the Jews, he's going to address three issues that were not only relevant to first century Christians, Roman Christians, or any Christian, but they are also extremely relevant to us today. You may have not ever asked, well, what about the Jews? It maybe never crossed your mind. But the, but the underlying issues that he, he, he confronts are, are true irrespective of age or era or century. So let's get at it. We've read the passage um, we, we started to look at the first, he doesn't really put it in, the, in, in this in form of a question. He just makes it as a statement. But the question would be, did God fail? You know, we're looking at the Jews and you just said that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it looks like something has separated the Jews from the God that loved them. Did he fail? It's the fact that the Jews are, are, are no longer coming to Christ, it seems, is it reflective of the fact that something in God, something in his plan went haywire. And his answer, as we read a moment ago in verses 6 through 8, is, is that not all ethnic Israel is the Israel of God or the Israel of promise. Um, he puts it this way, not all children of Abraham, uh, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So the, to the question, did God fail? Here's the answer. No. No. He is working his purpose according to his will. Now, that's important, not just to the question about Israel, but it's, in, but it's important in your life and my life. Because we've probably encountered times in our lives where we go, maybe this is not a me thing. Lord, maybe it's a you thing. Do you not love me like you once loved me? Do you not care for me? Are you not here? How could this happen? How could I end up in these circumstances? Is there something wrong with you, God? And the answer is, God is always working his purpose according to his will. He, Paul here gives two examples. We looked at the first one last time in verse 9. He talks about Isaac and Ishmael. 
two sons of Abraham, Ishmael born first, Isaac born second, but it was through the second born Isaac that the promise of God was passed. And then in verse 10, he, he, he gives, not only gives an example, but he elaborates on it. And it's the example of Jacob and Esau. Isaac, Isaac's two sons, right? And, um, and, he, and he tells us, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man. Now, uh, our Greek translations kind of soften what Paul actually writes uh, here, he, he says, through one act of sexual intercourse with her husband, Isaac. And the reason he's kind of um, in your face there is because he wants his readers to understand. These were twins. This happened in, 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 in one instance they were conceived. And yet in that, um, if, if Esau is the oldest... Why didn't the promise go through the oldest, Esau? In other words, the custom of the day, Scripture itself says that it is the oldest who receives the blessing of the Father and, and the promise. But yet, here we have an example of the, the oldest Esau was bypassed in favor of the youngest. Esau, they were twins. Esau was born, born first. And then secondly, uh, Jacob was born. Was it, was it because? And Paul entertains this thought because it's a very kind of at the core of, of, of our nature to think, well, maybe, maybe it was because Esau was disobedient to God and God foresaw Esau's disobedience. And so he said, I'm not going to send my blessing through Esau. I'm going to let it jump him and go to his younger brother, Jacob. Now, that's, that he knows that is a question uh, because we would think of that and know that Esau indeed was disobedient. He was disobedient. He was selfish. He could be arrogant. However, that's not the reason. I mean, one thing we know about Jacob Granted, his older brother was, was, was disobedient and a sinner and selfish, but so was Jacob, whose very name meant heel snatcher. He was a supplanter. He, he sought to undo um, uh, what, was, what was coming in fairness to other people. That, but Paul tells us that's not the reason that God had the promise go to Jacob. The reason Jacob was the child of the promise was that is what God chose to do. That is what God chose to do. Look down at, uh, at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And here's what Paul wants us to understand in answering this question. What's going on, whether it be with the Jews or whether it be in your life or my life? 
has God failed? Has, have, has God lost control? He says, no, in this case, God's purpose of election is not dependent on birth order. It's not dependent on good works. In this case, God decided to call Jacob, and therefore the older would serve the younger. He quotes Genesis 25 here. It was God's decision. Esau didn't have anything to do with it. Jacob didn't have anything to do with it. God had everything to do with it. Now, uh, that might, that might if, if you're not used to this kind of verbiage and this, this kind of thought that, well, surely God chose Jacob because he saw what Jacob would be like. Well, if that was the case, Jacob would never be chosen to do anything but bust hell wide open. Surely, surely God's choice was dependent on something in Jacob. But he said, no, it's, it was God's choice alone. He tells Rebecca, your younger boy or your older boy will serve your younger son. And then... To hammer his point home, <laughs> if, if, if you're not a, a discombobulated to this point, read again verse 13. He throws in this quote from Malachi 1, uh, which is a reference to God's people, the people of Jacob and, and Edom, the people of Esau, the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. And he says to them, he, he says of them, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And boy, that can really mess with your head, can it? Um, Paul is quoting Malachi chapter 1 to make his case that God is always in control and always knows what he's doing and always will do what his plan, what he has set his plan out to accomplish. And the meat of verse 13 is this. To Jacob, God showed love. To Esau, God gave justice. What did Esau deserve? He deserved Hell. He deserved separation from God. What did Jacob deserve? The same thing Esau deserved. But to Jacob, God shows love and he shows forgiveness. Now, I want to take just a minute at this point. Um, I think it's probably appropriate to acknowledge if you, have, if you didn't know it ahead of time, there are some difficult things in Romans 9. Um, and I want to just mention a few, few things um, that hopefully I, I pray will help all of us as we, whenever you address a difficult passage of Scripture, but, but specifically Romans 9, um, first of all, Read and learn these truths humbly. Come 
with humility before a passage like this. You know, you, the, the truth is you come with humility before, every time you open God's Word and you read it. But especially when you read things that maybe are unsettling or maybe things that you've never really read before or you've never heard them taught on or preached on before. Uh, I, I, Charles Spurgeon, in his message on this verse, he preached a whole message on Romans 9, verse 13, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, at the very beginning, this is, this is what he, he says, quote, Do not imagine for an instant that I pretend to be able thoroughly to elucidate these great mysteries. There are some men who claim to know all about the matter, but he who thinks he knows all about this mystery knows very little. Now, Spurgeon was a very learned man. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. But he would say, as I begin to preach this passage, just this verse, I don't have it all together. I don't know it. And the fact is... Um, it might be for you that what is written in, in Romans 9 seems contrary to what you have believed. Um, I, I want to, there's a little glimmer. You're going to be a whole lot more comfortable when we reach Romans 10, okay? Um, but just because Romans 10 contains truths and wondrous truths, um, that a, a lot of us are more comfortable with, it doesn't mean we should ignore the truth of Romans 9. Both chapters are God's Word. On the other hand, if I see chapter 9 as a way to score a doctrinal point or a way to destroy someone's theological system, then I'm missing the point of the entire chapter. That's not what Paul is about. Paul is pointing to the wonder, the glory, the greatness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. That's his point. I, I, um, I once heard somebody say, when it comes to truths like these that are addressed in, in Romans 9, like election or predestination, um, that whatever side you kind of have been raised on and you've, come, you've settled in on, on what you believe, um, the important thing, and I think it's probably... Uh, not, I think it's probably an uncommon thing, but the speaker was saying... Are you willing to come before God and lay down your preconceived notions and thoughts, lay down your theological doctrinal schemes and systems, and say, God, if what your word says runs contrary to everything I hold to, may I forego everything I, I hold to in order to be faithful and understand your word reigns supreme. That's a great, that's a great reminder. So, so we come with humility. Here's the second thing just to, to maybe acknowledge. God's choosing of some people and not others is not arbitrary. But 
the reasons he does so lie completely with him. We don't know why. We are told that he does. He doesn't explain to us why he might choose one person and might not choose another person. What we are told is this. The reasons are not in us. They don't lie in the fact that we're smarter uh, or we are better. We're more deserving. There's no such thing as the superiority of believers over unbelievers. I'm reminded of what Griffith Thomas, the, uh, the Anglican priest and scholar, was once asked after he had taught a lesson to his students on Romans 9.13. And, and a, a particular uh, young man approached him and said, asked him, said, Dr. Thomas, I am upset and I do not understand how it could say God hated Esau. And this was Thomas's wise reply. He said, interesting, my friend, for I am caught up and I am in just as much dismay and, and don't understand how he could love Jacob. And I think it's with that Humility, that understanding that we are all Esau's. Jacob was just as his brother. We are lost. We are, we are, we are coursing through our life, moving directly to hell until God mercifully, graciously enters our life through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, which leads me to the last thing, uh, just practical thing I want to mention. And that is that God's choosing, as it's described here in Romans 9, does not negate human responsibility, which is the point of chapter 10. Okay, um, in chapter 10, he's going to explain why it's so critical that God's people, Christians, go into the world and preach and teach and share the gospel. Because otherwise, unless a person believes and turns and trusts in Christ, they are lost. So both sides of this uh, are biblical. Both sides are, are critical to understand, but they do not oppose themselves. In fact, again, Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile election and human responsibility? And Spurgeon replied, I never try to reconcile two friends. What a great sense, a great understanding. Both human responsibility and God's choosing, God's election are biblical. We are people of the book. It's one of the reasons why we, we preach through Scripture, whether it be as we go through a book at a time or we take a passage and we, we go through that passage verse by verse because we, we are His people and we look to Him for truth. Both of these things are true. Billy Graham once put it like this, On one side of heaven, in this life, it is as if there is a sign that reads, whosoever will may come. But then we reach glory, 
On the other side of heaven, we turn around and the other side of the sign reads, chosen before the foundation of the world. These truths are not enemies. They, uh, they're friends. They're friends, as Spurgeon put it. Okay, uh, we, we have a few minutes left. Um, let me, let's go ahead and move to the second question, and, and it's this. Is God unjust? The first one is, God has God failed? Second one, verse 14, is God unjust? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Paul's answer is no, God's not unjust. In fact, he is free to, to save through his mercy. Through his mercy. Look at how he puts it in verse 4. He, he, he's going to address God's dealing with Moses and God's dealing with Pharaoh, right? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, I, I, I think it is in this passage. I know nobody's comfortable with Jacob if I loved, Esau if I hated. But I think this second question, is God unjust, really cuts to the core of where so many of us struggle with the idea of a sovereign God. Now, we'll, we, we believe in a sovereign God and we hold to the fact that God is sovereign. But I'm not sure we hold to the sovereignty of God as God himself presents it and portrays it in his word. Um, I think part of it is we don't like God being God, the God who is. I mean, we say, oh yeah, God is sovereign. But our definition of sovereignty is that the sovereignty of God means that he can do anything with me that I give him permission to do. You see, it's when God, God can do anything. He can do everything. But he can't violate my will. When it comes to my will, he has to get permission. And that's, that is exactly what Paul is confronting in Romans 9. He says, I will show compassion on whom I have compassion. To Exodus 33, his conversation with Moses. He says, Moses, I, I, I'm a God of mercy and I will show mercy. I will show compassion on who I choose to. And he raised, he tells Pharaoh, I've raised you up for the very purpose of exposing you, but not just you, but exposing who I am. I will show my power through this lost, pagan, rebellious king of Egypt. And so he does. So he does. Uh, this is the crux of the mercy of the mercy of God. John Stott, in his commentary on, this, uh, on this, these verses, writes this. 
If therefore God hardened some, he is not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If on the other hand he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and some are lost, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing from God's hand but judgment. That is so true. We tend to not think of, 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 of this reality. That when God sends Esau away and he doesn't choose him and, he, and, and, and Esau tears out the gates of, of hell or he judges Pharaoh... He is merely giving these men everything they want. I mean, we've said this before. Just go back and read the second half of Romans 1, starting in verse 18. He says, I will, just, I will turn you over to your own passions. You want to worship the creature rather than the creator? I will let you do it. I will, we will see the ramifications of that. And friends, in our culture and society today, we are seeing the ramifications of that. So that nobody goes to hell and says, this is not what I wanted. I wanted Jesus. I wanted you, God. That never happens. Instead, they go to hell knowing I'm getting exactly what I lived for, exactly what I... I, I, I desired. God's mercy intervenes and he extends it. Not to all, but he extends it to some. Well, finally, um, third question, verse 19. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who can resist his will? Well, the answer that Paul gives to the question, who can resist God's will, is that his plan is to show his glory through his mercy. His plan is to show his glory through his mercy. Notice verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I think sometimes we need to hear that, don't we? You know, we raise all these objections to God. How dare you do that? How dare, you know, what, what do you mean it's of you? You don't ask my permission before you do anything. You, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can show yourself as stronger than even my will. You don't consult me on everything. And finally, the answer is, who are you? Who are you? Who, who, who are you? We, we need to hear that. This is God we're talking about. This is God. Well, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, getting what they want, getting what they deserve. God is not giving the, these people anything but what they have chosen and yearned for. All right. Verse 23, in order 
to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. And this is a great way to wrap this, this message up as, as he quotes the prophet. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Here he is talking about Gentiles, and it's hard for us to, to get our, our hands wrapped around the derision and the revulsion that Gentiles were held in by the Jews. They were the pagans. And, and so wherever you are in your life, God is saying, you are not so far removed from my mercy. And why would he extend mercy to undeserving men and women so that his glory will be shown? Through, through you, through me. It is a wonderful amazing picture of God's grace and he goes so far as to call you his beloved. You are beloved. So why would we, why would we push back on that? It's, it's fascinating that he uses this idea of pots, that which is molded would say to the molder, uh, I want to give you an example of this. Imagine a maker of containers, of pots. Pots that can speak and can voice their, their opinion and their will. And uh, so that's the scene. As this, this maker looks out, he hears one up. Uh, yeah, what, what's, what's the issue? You don't want to be a bedpan? I made you to be a bedpan, and I made you to be a bedpan for a reason. You want to be something more useful? I can assure you, anybody that's ever been in the hospital with a, any kind of needy surgery finds you extremely useful. Oh, you don't like necessarily what that use is. You want to be the old Pepsi bottle? because it contains nicer things inside, guess what? I made you to be a bedpan for a reason. Yeah, go ahead, Mr. Neti Pot. What, you're not happy being a Neti Pot? You wanna be the, the container, the pot with the flowers? You don't like necessarily the way I made you to, help clear people's sinuses because everybody just knows you as trying to loosen up phlegm and goo in people's nose. Yep, here's the problem guys. You all want to be what you think is best for you, but I made you to be exactly who you are. And in that, you will find the best use and you will not only 
bring me, your maker, glory, but you will find a reason for yourself. And because I made you different, I made you some plain clay pots and I made other plastic containers and I made some beautiful in the way they look. But I made you that way for a reason. That's how you are fitted to be. And that's how it should be. Now I know that was kind of simple, uh, but I want to close out our service by saying God has made you as he's made you. And he makes different people for different reasons. But he offers himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to all of us. It is an act of grace, and it is, a, it is a reflection of the mercy and love of God. And so maybe the best thing you and I can do is stop looking at others and wanting to be like them, and look upward and trust God to be exactly who he's made us to be. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the fact that you offer the good news to all who will come. And God, we thank you that standing behind our coming is your calling and your purpose and your plan. So may you be glorified through our lives. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. Uh, stay with us as we close out our service in song. I hope that you will join us next time. May the Lord bless you.